he was making this great speech of a rebuttal of the President's State of the Union address. I think that's what it was. And uh, while he's speaking, the water was already over, all the way over there. And so he had to do this kind of thing. And the press had fun. Doesn't take an awful lot to get them upset. I remember when Dan Quayle didn't spell potato right. All kinds of things go wrong, doesn't it? I'm looking at this and it's not my notes. If, oh, let me let me do this. Since, since Pastor has been talking about how long I've known him, and I, I, I can't put years to it. But the first time he came to New York, he came with Brother Larry Clayton, and he played the saxophone, and there was some other guy who played the French horn. Man, it was great. And we, we took Larry Clayton out to eat, and uh, from that point on, Larry was always recommending to Peter good places to eat. Uh, somehow or other, Nilsson finds them. Oh, well. Uh, I'm, I am very happy and very pleased to be with you all tonight. Uh, yeah, it happened exactly the way he said. He called me because he came back from the trip, 7,000 miles, and he was still tired, but he hadn't talked to Ray Nilsson in a while, and he wanted to be updated on what's going on in this physical plant. And I guess most of you know about it anyway, don't you? No? No? Should I take a couple of seconds? Uh, it's back... Back somewhere around October that I was having some kind of difficulties and I ended up going to my pulmonologist and he found that in the chest cavity I was filling up with fluid and I had to drain it. And I had it drained and the hospital I went to did not correspond with my doctor and uh, after a week in the hospital I decided I should go back and see the doctor again and he took another x-ray and he found that all the fluid that they took out was back. They removed something like almost two liters which is close to uh, half a gallon that's an awful lot of stuff to be carrying around in here and then have it come back again. So he sent me to a surgeon because he figured the better thing is to let somebody get around and probe the inside. And Well, he, he did some things and was able to get rid of the, the new buildup of fluid, which to the best of my knowledge has not come back. 
but I was also diagnosed with cancer as a result of scraping that they did while it was in there. And the scraping, they made biopsies of it. And uh, yeah, I have a condition that's known as mesothelioma. And since that time, we've been seeing various doctors, the oncologists, and uh, the last, the last uh, visit I had, it was decided that I am not a candidate for chemotherapy, which I was not really very thrilled about having anyway. But uh, the alternative is that they're going to treat uh, symptoms. As things develop, they'll deal with them. And uh, so that's not exactly a lot of fun, but uh, I was just telling Pastor as we walked in here that I'm approaching my 86th birthday, which is long beyond anything that the Bible allows us. It allows us three score and ten, and by reason of strength, four score, and um, Abe Lincoln talked about four score and seven years ago. I'm coming up on four score and six. It doesn't seem like a long time, though. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of things have happened. Okay, if you will, first thing I would say is pray for me. Uh, I can can use that because, uh, number one, My strength is not what it used to be. I preached twice for Pastor Sager today. I thought I was supposed to preach four times, but it turned out it was only two instead of four. And I got here pretty tired. I was able to snooze a little bit and... uh, By God's grace, we will have a message. So turn to the epistle of Jude. Jude is pretty close to the end of the Bible. It's just before the book of Revelation. And it's only a one-chapter book. I'm I'm not even going to preach on the whole chapter. Jude, starting at the first verse, and we will read three. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you in peace, and love be multiplied. Brethren, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you, and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints." 
I'll read verse 4 also because it's an explanation. When you find the word for, very often you can substitute and say because. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we want to come before you this evening. We want to ask, Lord, that you would superintend these words, that you will uh, enable me by the Holy Spirit of God to expound a few things. And Lord, that these might be profitable because, Lord, we do still... Uh, live in perilous times. A lot of things are taking place, and Lord, we need the encouragement of the Word of God. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I start, Jude, he recognizes and identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. But Jude is one of the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so also was James. But it seems that he doesn't want to use that identification, and I don't know why. Maybe he felt it would be a matter of pride. You know, I'm writing to you, and I'm, I'm a brother of Jesus. And that should give more credence to my message. This is the message, right? It's not the messenger. It's the word of God. And this is the way he presented himself, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. And then to whom did he write the message? And he uses a number A number of descriptions. And as you listen to them, you will come to understand to whom he's writing. To them that are sanctified by God. Who are they? I mean, they believe this, right? They are Christians. They are (laughs) sanctified by God the Father... And preserved in Jesus Christ. And is this not part of the gospel? Jesus said that he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation. But is passed from death unto life. And we're preserved in Jesus Christ. And recognizing what happened on Calvary. What happened when the Lord Jesus was hanging on the cross between heaven and earth. And God, God incarnate, God who took upon himself a human form, was hanging on the cross. And it is through that act, number one, that sacrificial act, Number two, that substitutionary act. 
we have a relationship with God the Father. And that relationship is preserved in Jesus Christ. And the last description is called. So we're sanctified, we're preserved, and we're called. We belong to Jesus. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, and not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. We have a relationship with him, not based on any works of righteousness, which we could do. It's by his mercy he saved us. It's by the washing of regeneration. It's by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So he wants to make this absolutely clear to whom he's writing. He is not writing this book to unsaved people. Now, uh, the approach may be to some degree to Jewish believers. Uh, Jude and James, Peter, and many of the apostles continue to minister in Jerusalem. And we know from the writings about Paul when he returned to Jerusalem before his particular betrayal, he made a deal with the Christian Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to take part in a vow because he, they told him that his reputation was that he ignored Moses, that he was ignoring some of the dietary Jewish laws. And I, and I know Jewish believers today who continue to do that. They continue to eat kosher. They continue to do a lot of things, and uh, not for religious reasons, but they figure as a testimony to their unsaved Jewish friends because they say you became a goy so that you could eat trafe, so that you could eat shrimp, so that you could eat pork, so that you could eat all of these things, and this is why you became a Christian. And so for reasons that they think convenient, they continue to follow a, a culture. Is this, is this necessary? No. Is it, is it part of Christianity? No. But we all have cultures to a degree. And because, and because we do, there are things that we do differently. Spanish Christians are not exactly, exactly the same as English-speaking Christians. I mean, I don't know why this is true, but they, they do. And, of course, I was doing a bit of talking this morning about Norwegians and Swedes. And uh, we have our thing as well. But uh, we can't forget our basis is the Word of God. It's not 
private preferences. If our private preferences take us away from the word of God, there's something wrong with our preferences. Makes sense, doesn't it? So, he, I believe, is writing to Jewish believers. But he's not using that expression, so uh, I'm not making a big thing out of it. But beyond identifying to whom he's writing, he is also extending a prayer, mercy to you, and peace, and love be multiplied. I mean, what more can you wish for a fellow believer? What more can you pray for, for people, you know, fellow members of the church, people that you know who are saved, and you want to pray for them? What more can you do? Pray for mercy and peace, and that love be multiplied in their daily experiences. So that's what he's doing, and that's how he's introducing the letter. But there is a purpose for the letter. Verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, faith, as it is being mentioned in this portion, faith in this passage refers to a system of doctrine. It is not talking about the faith that we exercise to come to Christ, to uh, recognize our sin, to confess. This is all part of it as well. But it is, he's talking about the common salvation that was once delivered unto the saints. Uh, I want you to look for a moment in First Timothy Chapter fourteen of chapter chapter six. Wait a minute, can it be? No, chapter three, verse fourteen. As a matter of fact, I don't think there is a chapter six. Oh yes, okay. Uh, okay, verse fourteen. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And he is describing for them the church. It's not Pastor Pete Montoro's church. 
We pastors like to identify churches in that way. Open Door is Pastor Pete's church. Woodhaven Baptist Church was Ray Nilsson's church. And what have you, but you know what? Ain't so. It's not our church. Uh, Woodhaven Baptist Church was established back in the last century in 1890. Believe me, I had nothing to do with it. When was Open Door established? 1992, not 1890. 100 years difference. And a lot of the success of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church has been the personal effort of Pastor Montoro. No question about it. No doubt about it. But He's an under-shepherd. He's not an owner. It's the church of the living God. And it is described for us here in a very unique way. It says, How thou mayest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And then it uses an expression, the pillar and the ground of the truth. It's the church of God. It is the church of the living God. Aren't you glad that we have a God who lives? Aren't you glad that we have a living Savior? I serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living no matter what men may say. I I see his hand of mercy. I feel his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him. He's always near. Amen? But I would like to talk a little bit about this description of the church, the pillar, and the ground of the truth. And to some degree, I sort of think he's referring to Grecian architecture. Because if you've seen any pictures of Grecian architecture, you find out there's a lot of pillars. And the pillars are those things which hold up the roof. They are that which supports the edifice. And he is saying that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. We don't make it up. It's not our message. It's not our opinion. It's the word of the living God. And we find that the church is the pillar. The pillar of that which supports the message which has been declared for the last 2,000 or so years. Why we need the local church. Why we need that to stand behind and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
very simply told, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Very simple. It's so very simple that a child, a little child can understand it. A little child can get saved. Some people say, oh, kids can't understand at four or five years of age. Oh, yes, they can. Oh, yes, they can. Because they can recognize that they are sinners. It doesn't take a lot to explain to a four-year-old. He doesn't do everything that his father or his mother want him to do. They don't need to be convinced. And they read, then they have to recognize that wrongdoing is sin. And once they understand that, Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins according to the scripture, according to the word of God. Not, not pastor's opinion. Not what a lot of people would like to say, but it's what the word of God says. And the church is the support of that truth. But it's not only the pillar, it's the ground. It's the basis. It's the foundation. I mean, Jesus told Peter, you know, when Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. It wasn't Peter's idea. It was the God of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. It wasn't too long later that the Lord had to tell Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter was saying things that were contrary to the gospel. Jesus was telling them it's only a few days and he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be tried. He's going to be put to death. But on the third day, he would rise again. Peter says, far be that from thee, Lord. May this never happen to thee. And the Lord says, get thee behind me, Satan. It is the plan, the plan of the almighty God where Jesus Christ, we understand, was the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. We read in Genesis in chapter 1, in six calendar 24-hour days, God created heaven and earth. And on the last part of the sixth day, he created man. Man in his image. The same day that he created animals. 
So, uh, I mean, dinosaurs were not roaming around for hundreds of millions of years before man came on the scene. They were created the same day, only in the morning. And the capstone of the creative week was the man that was created in God's image and God's likeness. But God knew. And Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. Before the plans went into motion, there was a plan to rescue sinful man. Now, it doesn't make an awful lot of difference what the world thinks about Jesus. We know what they think about him. And they try to do all kinds of things to convince us about who Jesus is and they say was because they don't like to believe that he still lives. He's still here. Jesus is the Lamb of God. So it doesn't matter what the world thinks, but it makes a lot of difference. It makes a great big deal of difference what we think about him. And it makes a big difference how our lives are affected by what we think about him. So I'm just going to do a couple of things. I have five things listed here. I don't know that I will do five, but firstly, we are told by Jude, we are to contend earnestly for the faith. It means we're to be involved. It means that we're to stand for Christ. We are to take a stand for him when everybody all around us thinks we're nuts. We're to contend. And contend gives you the idea of fighting, of taking this personal stand. Now, if we are to contend for the faith, it's not necessarily saying that we're to be contentious. But you know what? The song, Now I Belong to Jesus, Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Jesus did something for me. Jesus did something for me that I could never do for myself. And you know what? He he keeps on doing it on a daily basis. We should not be ashamed to own our Savior. We should not be fearful. But the tendency is there. The tendency is there because of the structure of society, particularly in America. Especially in America, because why? Because we believe everybody has the right to believe what they want to believe. We believe in the freedom of religion. 
Well, I mean, this came about because, and it was our Baptist forefathers who had most to do with that because all of the Protestants at that time understood church religion. They understood, excuse me, state religion. The Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, well, be all of these people understood state religion because that's what they had. And of course, the Roman Catholics understood state religion maybe probably better than most of them. And so in the early days of our country, once, once we got our freedom, the problem of religion became big. Because how are we going to deal with this? I mean, when we were in England, the Anglican Church was a true church. If we were in Germany, the Lutheran Church was a state church. And all of them, in, the, in Scotland and, and other places, the Presbyterian Church was a state church. Who, what is going to be the state church in the United States of America? And none of these people had any problems with state religion. They all knew it. It was Baptists who appealed to George Washington and told him that it was not right for the government to tell people what is the right religion. And consequently, the First Amendment to our Constitution, the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights was written. So people have the right to disbelieve. People have the right to believe all kinds of things. Witchcraft, if they like. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't mean because they have to have the right to believe what they believe that we have to go along with their right. We don't. We have to tell them they're wrong. And then, what will we be told? You know, we're bigoted. We believe that there's only one way to get to heaven. Well, that's what Jesus said. Didn't he? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. So, we have to deal with this message the preaching of Christ to declare to the world the gift of God. If we don't tell them, they won't know. If we don't tell them, they'll go on their own merry way. Think it doesn't matter what you believe. And then we have to declare to the world also that this message entails the grace of God. We're saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's by his mercy. It's by his grace that's been manifested. And then, of course, we also, we also have to declare to the world the greatness of God. Not only how good he is, but his majesty. Who this God who spoke worlds 
into existence is. And because he loves you so much, he was willing to become a human being. He was willing to take upon himself a robe of flesh. And he went through the entire human experience. I tell people from the womb to the tomb, he was, uh, I'm trying to think of the quotation which is leaving me. Forgive me. You all, all will know what I'm going to say, but I didn't say it. We have to then, we have to defend the principles of Christ. There are principles of living. We don't live the way the world lives. And very often it's not something that we have conjured up of ourselves. Of course, the Bible gives us many, many uh, uh, admonitions that we're supposed to mortify the old man. We're supposed to put him to death. We are supposed to put on the new man. We are supposed not feed the old nature. These things, I mean, they're true. There are principles of living. There are principles of loving. And there are principles of laboring. All of these things are involved in the Christian's life and in the Christian's experience. And then, of course, we have to disciple. We have to disciple people for Christ. Will you look with me firstly in Matthew chapter 28? You know this. You memorized it. If you hadn't, you should. Verse 18, and Jesus came and he spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. We've a story to tell to the nations. We've a message that people need to hear. And Jude tells us and describes it by contending earnestly for the faith. And so we become involved. We become involved in telling people uh, that we must define the plan of Christ, the plan of salvation, the plan to get people saved, the plan of separation, because Christians cannot live the way they always lived before. And also there is a plan of service. God does have something for each one of us. I can go on ad infinitum and Number one, 
the physical ability doesn't quite allow it. Number two, I have been given time limits and we are going to have a prayer meeting. So please, let's just pray. Our Father, as we come to you this evening, recognizing that there is a plan, a plan that has been set in motion for the worlds, but there is a plan that's been set in motion for each one of our individual lives. And I think that's what Jude is contending to. But we cannot, Lord, we recognize we cannot do these things apart from the ministry of the local church which Jesus established for our benefit, for our learning, and for our strengthening. So we commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.